Those he saves are his delight. Precious in his holy sight. That is good news for us this morning, isn't it? Greetings from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. It is good to be home and away from hot, humid weather. Dear God, it is so great to be here this morning. Um, just want to express my utmost care and admiration for this church. I love you guys dearly. It is so sweet to see all of your faces. I have prayed and, and loved and cheered as I've followed along with, with you online um, and, and prayed for you yesterday or last week when I heard the news of Ben becoming a pastor. I was punching the air and telling everyone around me who did not know who you were, what had just happened in Los Angeles. It is a blessing for the city. It is a blessing for this church. And I am so glad to see God's work here. It brings me great joy to bring you God's word this morning. It really does. So please, if you have your Bibles, grab them and open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I don't know what page it's on in the Pew Bible. If someone could shout it out, that would be great. 1052. 1052. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And it says this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must have his own household competently or he must manage his own household competently, and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders, so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. 
he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. God, we can't understand this word without your help. Our ears would be closed. Our eyes would be blind. Our hearts would be hardened if you don't work in us. So we ask that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit to understand your word. Help us to heed your words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was a hot, humid night in Queens, New York. A group of young adults from North Shore Baptist Church, which we just prayed for earlier, lined up facing each other on the field. Ed, the senior pastor, clutched the football and yelled, C-35, Alpha Bravo, rocket ball. And Logan, Howard, knew exactly what to do. He bolted forward, ran 20 steps, and darted right. Ed hurls the football. Logan extends his hands, catches the ball, and sprints down the field full speed. And that was the game rocket ball. And some of you, who know me well, are utterly bewildered as to why I would open a sermon with a sports illustration. Well... This one might be my favorite because Rocketball is an utterly meaningless game. There are no rules. There are no points. There is no teams. It is utterly meaningless. The game was invented for the sole purpose of fooling an unsuspecting newcomer into giving his pointless game his all. And so Logan sprinted down the field. See, Logan Howard knew exactly what he needed to do. He was told, run 20 steps forward, dart right, catch the ball, run down the field. He knew exactly what to do. He had no idea why he was doing it. This passage would be simple to preach as a what sermon, and it primarily is a what sermon. The, the passage doesn't have a ton of commands. It, it doesn't give a ton of things for us to do. It, it tells us things that we ought to know. If I just spent my time explaining the what of this passage, I would walk through the passage, have a 15-point sermon, walk through the qualifications of church leaders, of pastors first, then deacons, and then I would pray. And that would be a fine sermon to preach. But a more difficult task than just saying what church leaders ought to be is understanding why we ought to have godly church leaders. So you can know exactly what to do and not understand why you ought to do it. You can know exactly what to do and not know why you ought to do it. So here's going to be the main idea of this sermon this morning. Know what to do. Have godly leaders. Know what to do. Have godly leaders. And what I'm going to do in the beginning of the sermon is I'm going to give two reasons why 
you should have godly leaders. And then I'll give three qualities of what to look for in godly leaders. Three qualities of what to look for. So first two reasons why, then three attributes of church leaders. The first two qualities are going to be exclusively for pastors, and then the last one is going to be for both deacons and pastors. So let's begin with the why. Why should you have godly church leaders? Reason number one, because the church is God's house. Because the church is God's house. Look at verses 14 to 15 with me. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So that people would know how they ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians, to Timothy, who's pastoring this church in Ephesus, so that they understand how they ought to conduct themselves in God's house. So why should you care about what kind of leaders you appoint? Because this house belongs to God. And with God's house, you have God's rules. God's house, God's rules. Christians aren't motivated by our own preferences, but by our stewardship. If you want to be a church who serves the Lord well, you have to recognize firstly that this church doesn't belong to you. This kingdom isn't yours. It belongs to God. And God has entrusted us as Christians to care for his church, which means that we are ultimately accountable to him. And that means that what we do in God's house matters. What we do in God's house matters because God matters. If it's his house, then he gets to have his rules. Reason number two, because the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Because the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The church is the foundation of truth and the pillar of of truth. Paul is giving two functions here. It's the foundation of truth because the church is where we believe the truth. We defend the truth. The church is where people believe the Bible, where we defend the Bible. And it's the pillar of truth because the church is where we exalt the truth. Think about what a pillar does. It supports and pedestals something of value. See, the church isn't just a gathering place. Isn't just a building. Isn't merely a group of people that are gathering together to see one another every single Sunday. The church is the visible display of God's glory. Which means that what we do in God's house matters because what we do here as a church what you do every Sunday displays something about God. It communicates to the city of Bellflower something about God. It communicates to visitors that are here this morning something about God. What you do displays what you believe. What you 
do displays what you believe, which means that bad conduct broadcasts a bad God. Bad conduct broadcasts a bad God. But a church with godly conduct, a church that obeys the word, a church that seeks to honor God is like a lighthouse that beams God's glory into the stormy, destitute darkness of this world, which means that we ought to care about obeying what God says, which is why we care about obeying the Bible. So those are two reasons why we ought to care about what the Bible is telling us to do in this passage, about having godly leaders. Here's the what. Have godly church leaders. Read with me from verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. The oversight of the church, the watching over the church, is a noble work. Overseer here referring to pastor. It's an honorable work. And of course it's a noble work. Because it's God's work. It's God's work. God is the one who is uh, raising up these overseers. God is the one who is entrusting them to care for his flock. And so, of course, it ought to be a noble work because God is majestic and noble. Which means that his under-shepherds, his pastors, ought to also be characterized by nobility. Not by a purple robe, but draped in godliness. Now, all the qualifications of the office are worthy of extended meditation. At the same time, most of the qualifications in this chapter are pretty obvious. Not to say that there can't be unreasonable expectations or misunderstandings about what's being said here, but to qualify every single qualification would require time that many of the not qualified saints would not have the self-control for. So I'm not going to give a 15-point sermon. What I'm going to do instead is give three categories of what to expect in the pastor. And the last category applying to both pastors and deacons or deaconesses. So the three categories I'm going to give are firstly choice, choice, secondly, competence, competence, and thirdly, character. So first choice, second competence, third character. A brief side note. Read 1 Timothy 2, 12 with me. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. I don't think this passage is referring to all women speaking at any point in the church here. What he's talking about is speaking with authority, speaking in terms of teaching over a man, which is why pastors are male. Pastors are male. That's not in the chapter as a brief aside, to make clear that pastors ought to be men and exercise their authority as men in the office of pastor wisely. Now, deacons and deaconesses, I believe, are open to women. 
And let me explain briefly why. First reason is because in verse 11, when you look at wives, um, that word could also be understood to be women in the Greek. And it would be an odd thing, I think, for, for Paul to explain the qualifications of a deacon's wife, but not give any qualifications for an elder's wife. Right? So the likelihood of these two offices being the same in terms of what Paul's talking about is there. Secondly, you can also see that Phoebe in Romans 16, when Paul is writing to the church in Rome, is referred to using the same word as deacon. So it's likely that in Romans 16, when Paul is writing to the church in Rome, that Phoebe, a member of the church there, is serving as a deaconess. Right? So, so that's a brief aside in terms of the role of women in these offices. Right? So the office of pastor is for men. The office of deacon can be for both men and women. That's a brief side note. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Here's point number one. Choice. Choice. Read verse one with me. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Notice that in this verse it says that he aspires. In other words, if someone should be a pastor, he should want the office. Not because he was coerced or forced to serve, but because he wants it. Now, let me be clear, a desire alone does not qualify a man to be a pastor. There are plenty of men in this world that might desire to be a pastor that you should not recognize to be pastors because God has not called them. A desire alone does not qualify a man to be a pastor, but never less than a desire. It is a bad idea to make a man a pastor if he doesn't want to. Now, at at the very least, a man might need to just grow in his understanding of the office or might want to dedicate his time to other things like a unique season of life in his family or a unique opportunity to do ministry in other ways. But at worst, if you appoint a man to be a pastor who does not want the office, you might wreak havoc in your church. Think about this. Would you want a heart surgeon to operate on you who didn't want the job? Would you want a doctor to care for your soul who didn't want the job? You want to be slow to recognize a man who doesn't seem to want the office. You want to be slow to recognize a man who doesn't want the office. On the other hand, church, this also means that you don't resent a man if he wants to be a pastor. He's not being overly ambitious or arrogant or going ahead of himself. He desires a good thing. It doesn't mean that you should expedite the process and microwave him into a pastor. But it does mean that you ought to encourage him in those desires. It is a good thing. He, he desires a noble work. That's the first what? Choice. Here's the second one. Competence. Competence. He should be competent in teaching and in leading. In teaching and in leading. So let me go over teaching first. Look at verse 2. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, hospitable, able to teach. 
And that's all Paul says in this entire chapter about teaching. Able to teach. He has to be able to teach. That doesn't mean that teaching isn't important. In other passages of scripture, even in this book, Paul entrusts Timothy to teach good doctrine and to guard against false doctrine. But all he says here are three words, to be able to teach. Pastors are able to teach the word. So how can you discern between a good teacher and a bad one? Much can be said. Sometimes a guy just isn't good at teaching. But I think this question might be the most important one to ask when you're discerning whether or not a man is able to teach. Is he clear? Is he clear? When, when he teaches, are you able to understand it? Do you walk away understanding the Bible better? Here's what I think is the second most important question that you can ask. Are you sure he's clear? Are you sure? And, and I mean that in contrast to getting distracted by other things other than clarity. Beware of being dazzled by fireworks. The men who are uber charismatic. The ones who glimmer but then fizzle out. Heed the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Eloquent wisdom can tickle your ears and stimulate your mind while distracting you from an unaffected soul. Say again, eloquent wisdom can tickle your ears and stimulate your mind while distracting you from an unaffected soul. It's not a matter of how funny he is or whether he captures your attention, but whether you understand the Bible, can you see Christ in his preaching, in his teaching, in his discipling? A truly compelling leader must be clear before he's charismatic. Not that charisma's bad, but you ought to be clear before you're charismatic. Because charisma is not inherently evil, but it could become a Trojan horse of godlessness. Be alert. Look for clarity in teaching. That's number two, competence. In addition to that, look at verse 4 to 5. That's the first half. Here's leading. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Now, let me tell you why I don't think verse 4 is saying. Verse 4 is not saying that he has to be married. I don't think verse 4 and 5 is saying that a pastor must be married. If we're saying that a pastor must be married, then we are disqualifying Paul and Jesus. I think that's a bad idea. Right, so, so a pastor doesn't have to be married, but what Paul is pointing out here is that the most obvious sign for most men in seeing whether or not they are capable of leading is to look at their family. 
Look at their family. See it the way that they lead their family at home. If their family is in complete disarray, and then they want to lead God's family, don't let them. Don't let them. In other words, look at the way that these people live their lives in other avenues, observe their lives, and see how they lead. Do they characterize themselves by these qualifications found in this passage? Do they care for others? Do they manage things well when they're given responsibility? If they do, they might make a great pastor. But if they don't, don't be fooled. Don't make that guy a pastor. So he needs to be able to lead. So that's number two in terms of competence. He's supposed to be competent in teaching. And he's supposed to be competent in leading. Here's the third thing. Character. And we're going to camp out here. Character. What might be most striking about this passage is how little time Paul gives to choice or competence. How little time Paul gives to choice or competence. Out of 15 qualifications that Paul lists out here for pastors, only three of them pertain to choice or competence, and 12 pertain to a man's character. 12 pertain to a man's character. Why would Paul spend so much time on the character of a man. In fact, when you look at the qualifications of deacon and elder, both of them are primarily about character, which means that we ought to pay extra attention to to character. Listen to me very carefully. A, A church member might not imitate a pastor's desire to teach. Right, so you could sit under the ministry, preaching ministry of PJ for decades and not absorb his ability to teach. A church member might not imitate or absorb a pastor's desire to be a pastor. Right, if you sit under the preaching of a godly man, that doesn't make you want to become a pastor all of a sudden, even though the Lord may work in you in that way as you grow in your understanding of what a pastor is. But a church will will, underlining will, adopt its leader's character. A church will adopt its leader's character. Think about what Paul tells the Corinthian church in chapter 11. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So so a church under the leadership of certain men in the pastoral office, will become more like them as they seek to follow Christ, which means that they need to be godly. Pick godly men. So Paul lists what a leader's character is and is not. So let's go down the list here. A church leader is, in verse 2, he is above Reproach. Verse 7 says that he has a good reputation among outsiders. The church leader is the husband of one wife. He's faithful to his spouse. A church leader or pastor is self-controlled or or disciplined. 
He's not lazy. A church leader is sensible. He has common sense. He's not an airhead. A church leader is respectable. He carries himself well. Doesn't mean he's arrogant, but he possesses the quality of stickiness. Where people are drawn to them. Where they listen. Where they follow. And he's hospitable. He's willing to go out of his way to care for others' needs. He invites people to their home. He cares for people. Now listen to what he's not. A church leader is not a drunk. If he's possessed by illicit substances or other things that make him lose control, don't make him a pastor. He is not a bully. If he thinks that every single fight or disagreement that he's involved in is his Lutheresque stand, don't make him an elder. Don't make him a pastor. You do not want Armageddon in your church. Quarrelsome. You know those people that tell you that they just kind of end up falling into disagreements all the time? And the common denominator is always them? Don't make those people pastors. Verse 11 goes on to say that, especially for women, that they not be slanderers. Think about your words, how you speak to others. Are you quarrelsome? And they ought not to be greedy, not dominated by things of this world. If, if a man is possessed by materials while he's trying to care for the souls of the people under his care, he will do a bad job. And lastly, Paul says that he's not a new convert, lest he become arrogant like Satan. There's two, two prongs there. On one hand, he shouldn't be a new convert, just in general, in terms of prudence. Don't make a young believer a pastor too quickly. On the other hand, the real concern underneath that is pride. So is this man characterized by pride? Because if he is then he might be following the footsteps of his father, the devil, and thinking too much of himself. Don't make that man a pastor. Now again, most of these qualifications make complete sense. Is that difficult to understand these things? And these qualifications alone by themselves don't a pastor make. But if you look at these qualifications and you layer them on top of each other as you look through the kaleidoscope. You begin to see the portrait of a godly man. Of a godly man. You see a collage of godliness. So don't compromise on character. Don't compromise on character. A leader who is not of godly character is not worth following. A leader who is of godly character is not worth following. Plus, what would that communicate to the world? Think about it. The world can explain talent. They can understand notoriety. They can understand fame. The world can explain gifting. Right? If a guy's a real charismatic teacher or good leader who could build infrastructures to gather people in. The world can understand that. 
But godly character is a supernatural, unique, spirit-given blessing. It's a spirit-given blessing. You can't just make someone righteous. It is God's work in them. So how in the world can you do all this? Some of you might be re-questioning your vote last week. I'm, I'm not telling you to do that. Ben is a godly man. PJ is a godly man. But how in the world are we supposed to expect this of them? I mean, there are men in this room that desire to be pastors. How in the world can you meet these qualifications? How can any of us do this work that Paul entrusts Timothy with, that Jesus entrusts his church with? How can we do all of these things? And the answer is, you can't. You can't. And you can't. You can't. And you can't. You can't because you are sinful. You are broken. You are imperfect, ungodly, wicked, and vile. If you were to stand before God and go down this list, it would be failure after failure after failure. For God, who can stand? One man. His name is Jesus. Look at the attributes that Paul lists again. Look down at, at verses 1 to 13. Who does this remind you of? All of these attributes. All of these qualifications. They're meant to remind you of Christ. They're meant to remind you of Christ. Leaders of the church are called to be like these because Christ is like this. See, this is the third reason of why we care about what we do. Reason number three, because our godly obedience reveals Jesus. Because our godly obedience reveals Jesus. Look at verse 16. And most certainly... The mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This great mystery is Jesus, the millennia of humanity. Throughout the Old Testament, since creation itself, have been awaiting the arrival of this king. Who now, Paul says, has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Confirmed by the work of the Spirit. Witnessed by angels and nations. And exalted in the belief of people as he's taken up in glory. Christ is valuable. He is the mystery of godliness. He has revealed himself to us, and he is exalted in heaven and earth. Think about who Jesus is. Jesus had perfect integrity before God and man. Jesus always has been and always will be faithful and loyal to his bride, the church. 
Jesus was self-controlled before the courts of man despite false accusations. Jesus remained sober and drank the full cup of his father's wrath. Jesus does not break the bruised reed but cradles it with a shepherd's care. Jesus is the Prince of Peace focused on doing his father's will. And Jesus rejected all the riches and might of this world humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The good news of the gospel is not that we climbed up a ladder of godliness by our own might, but that Christ came down from his throne above, suffered the wrath that we deserved on the cross, and rose from the dead so that we may repent and believe and have everlasting life. You're not a Christian here this morning. That is the most important news that you can hear. Jesus died for sinners. Repent and believe in him. And Jesus will save you from your sin. The Father will forgive you because when he sees you, he will see Christ and all of his godliness. But Jesus doesn't just save us from sin. He saves us to righteousness. He doesn't just save us from sin. He saves us to righteousness. When Christ saves us, he doesn't just leave us here twiddling our thumbs until he descends from the heavens. He gives us his spirit. And the Holy Spirit transforms us more and more into his likeness. See, we were bound in our sins and transgressions. We were dead in our iniquities, but Christ freed us. He resurrects us from sin to righteousness. Not only are we freed from the judgment and wrath from sin, we are freed from its bondage. We can live righteous lives in Christ as he transforms us from glory to glory. And that transformation is most evident in the character and actions that we display in the church. The way you conduct yourself, the way you live your life is a window to see Christ work in you. Every encouragement you give, every piece of godliness that you display points people to Christ. And who better to lead us than those who exemplify Christ's likeness in their character? Can you see why charisma and talent will distract you from true beauty? Because Christ is the true value that we seek in our leaders. We want to see Jesus. And as they lead, as they care, as a shepherd, as a look over, they make those who follow them more like Jesus as well. So look for such men. Pray that God would raise up such men as pastors and that God would raise up such righteous, godly men and women as deacons and deaconesses. So there's a lot of what's there for the past 40 minutes here are a few things to do first thing look use 
this chapter as a guide for what you look for. Don't be like Samuel, who goes to the house of Jesse and gets distracted by all the buff brothers of David. Look for the one whom God has raised up, whom God is transforming, and recognize him. Second thing to do, pray. Pray that God would raise up those people. It's a work of Christ in such men and in such women who are to become deaconesses. And it is a grace from God, is a gift from God, which means that it is primarily a work of God. So ask God to bless this church. And thirdly, value such men. Value such men. You guys have been given great pastors. I mean that. You guys have been given great pastors. And to be honest, I didn't expect Ben and PJ not to be here this morning. I was going to publicly encourage them. But let me tell you, these men are fantastic. They really are. And I love them dearly. So since they're gone, I could be a little more direct in terms of my application. Care for them. Actually love them. Care for them. Their care, especially PJ's, who's on staff, is your responsibility as a flock. Which means that you have a responsibility to care for them like they're going to be here a long time. PJ's salary is not an obligation. It's a privilege. Caring for Ben and making sure that he's not swamped by work and the ministry is not a burden. It's a blessing. Encourage them. If you see them do godly things, if you see them uphold righteousness and Christ-likeness, tell them. If you see something, say something. Support them with, their, with your time, with your service. Listen to them. Treasure them as you would treasure Christ. Hebrews 13, 17 says that, that you are to joyfully submit to them. Because they keep watch over your souls. And I'm confident that they will do rightly by you. That they will stand before God confident in their shepherding of you. They are going to do a good job. You guys are blessed. Last Sunday might be one of the most important Sundays in Bethany Baptist Church's history. For your godliness. For the health of this church is an amazing gift from the Lord. So don't take it for granted. Love these men. Care for these men. I'll close with this account from Don Carson. He writes an account of his father in a book called The Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And he writes this. Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures. But hundreds of people in his area and beyond testified how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's, yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. 
He was not a gifted administrator, but there is no text that says, by this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you are good administrators. His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition. But his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. Only rarely did he break through his pattern of reserve and speak deeply and intimately with his, with his children, but he modeled Christian virtues to them. He much preferred to avoid controversy than to stir things up, but in his own commitments to historic confessionalism, he was unyielding. And in ethics, he was a man of principle. He was not very good at putting people down, except on prayer lists. And when he died, there was no crowd around the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. It was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting, because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Tom won entrance to the only throne room that matters. Not because he was a good man or a great man. He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor. But because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him who he longed to hear saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Lord Father, we desperately need your help. Help us to treasure Christ in such a way that we would have zeal to conduct ourselves in a godly manner. Make us more like you. God, we pray for, for PJ and for Ben that you would guard them, that you would protect them from sin. Give them wisdom as a shepherd and care for this flock. God, I pray for all the members of this church and for the members that are to come, that they would be able to hold their leaders accountable to these qualifications that you have laid down in Scripture that they would pray for such men to be raised up and that you in your supernatural blessing to this church would raise up many men as pastors and many men and women as deacons and deaconesses to serve this body. God, we can only do it by your help. And we thank you that you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe I'm supposed to take